from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on Fruit IPM. more American than apple pie. How about a pie made with native wild blueberries? Wild blueberries were gathered by natives well before Europeans arrived on these shores, but semi-cultivated wild blueberries, or lowbush blueberries, became one of our first agricultural industries in the United States. I'm going to take a break from pest management in this episode to talk about what makes this crop so unique and to talk about incorporating pollinators into IPM. I'm going to jump right into the history with someone who has made a little wild blueberry history of his own. I'm Frank Drummond, and I'm at the University of Maine, where I'm an insect ecologist in the School of Biology and Ecology, and I am the IPM and pollination specialist in cooperative extension for wild blueberry. It's really just, I mean, I've fallen in love over the last 30 years working with this crop because it is just such a lovely, delicious berry that is just part of our ecosystem, you know. There's been a fair bit written about wild blueberry production and its history. Most of it sort of, of the history really starts from the Civil War almost 200,000 acres at that time were managed and blueberries were harvested by local folks. And it was very much a slash and burn type agriculture, which, which was learned from the Native Americans. And as soon as the, the trains around the Civil War came up into Maine, they would put blueberries on boxes and then ship them down to Boston and New York. And they were, you know, dried and utilized by soldiers. And that was the height of Maine's blueberry production. Although at that point, because it was really just burning the fields and then harvesting them a year and a half later, uh, yields were, you know, not what they are today. They were maybe uh, a couple of hundred pounds per acre, where now the average yield is about four to 5,000 pounds per acre. Well, I think it's interesting. Well, you know, I grew up in New England, so um, my my whole family, you know, they won't even look at a a high bush cultivated blueberry. They're offended by these enormous apple-sized blueberries. I think that's the common feeling. Well, you know, with this, it's unlike many crops where maybe in high bush you might have five or six cultivars. So you do have diversity. And in fact, I have to say, many of those cultivars have introgressed uh, low bush blueberry genes in them to provide better uh, winter hardiness. But that's, I'm, I'm getting sort of off track. But because every plant has different genetics, that is one of the most important factors that sort of slow down insect population growth and explosion. It's quite often talked about in If you take a class in IPM that plant diversity is really important, well, you see it in action in wild blueberry fields where one plant you'll be looking at is very glossy and has very few leaf trichomes, and then the plant right next to it is fuzzy and really hairy. 
then the next one is really red with lots of anthocyanins, and the next one is yellow, and then the other one is green. And this diversity with different levels of defenses um, really do make it more difficult for the insect pests to adapt to any single one genotype. So genetic diversity is critical to wild blueberry plants, making them stronger and more resistant to pest organisms. But didn't I say this episode wouldn't be about pests? Well, what we really care about is the fruit, right? Well, insects have an important play there as well. But first, I want to cover the basics behind how a flower becomes a fruit. Botanically speaking, a fruit is a seed-bearing structure that develops from the ovary of a flowering plant. We presume that the plant puts all this effort into producing a sweet thing around its baby seeds so that some animal will come along, eat it, then poop it out somewhere else, thus dispersing those offspring and giving them a little fertilizer in the process. Most fruit develop from a fertilized ovary, um, an ovary fertilized by pollen. You can think about pollen kind of like plant sperm. Some fruiting plants have complete flowers. That means they have both male and female parts. The male parts are called anthers, and the female reproductive system is made up of a stigma, style, and ovary. Some fruiting plants are self-pollinating, which means that the ovary can be fertilized by pollen from the anthers of the same flower. Some fruiting plants have separate male and female flowers, so there needs to be some mechanism for getting the pollen from the male flower to the female flower. Some fruiting plants must be cross-pollinated in order to fertilize an ovary. In other words, these ovaries can only be fertilized by pollen from a different plant entirely. These plants fly in a co-evolutionary relationship that reward insects with nectar and pollen in exchange for the spread of their pollen and therefore more genetic diversity in their offspring. This is the case for most apples, even though they do have complete flowers. This is why apple orchards must contain more than one variety within close proximity of each other. Blueberry can sometimes self-pollinate, but we get a much better fruit when blueberry flowers are cross-pollinated. However, getting pollen out of a blueberry flower anther requires a little help from co-evolutionary relationships with native bees. I'll let Frank explain. The flower of both both cultivated and wild blueberry have what are referred to as porocidal anthers. And they're anthers that enclose the pollen and they have holes in them and they have to be vibrated in order to release the pollen once anthesis begins. And so this makes it very difficult for a lot of animals, a lot of insects, even a lot of bees to extract the pollen. The poor honeybee um, tries its darndest to get the pollen out, and generally it's more of an incidental venture for the honeybee in feeding for nectar, you know, hit the anthers with their head, with their proboscis, um, you know, their heads just barely fit into the corolla, and so they're really not adept at extracting pollen. But... Many of the native bees, and there's we've documented over 120 species that are associated with wild blueberry, and there are 275 species of bees in Maine, so there's probably more than 120 that visit 
wild blueberry flowers, but many of them have various behaviors or morphologies that allow them to extract pollen. And I don't think it's a coincidence that if the flower is vibrated at 440 hertz with a tuning fork, the pollen comes just pouring out of the flower, and that is the frequency that bumblebees vibrate the flowers. So what, what, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> um, so they're highly co-evolved. So bumblebees will, what they call, buzz pollinate the flowers in order to extract that pollen, as well as some of the adrenin. Some of the osmia crawl in the flower. They're much smaller, and they actually drum the anthers with their front legs at a high rate. So they dislodge the pollen. And then some of the helictids as well crawl in and, you know, bat and bang the anthers to get uh, the pollen out. And in studies we've done, we've found that on average, in a single visit, a honeybee will place about three pollen grains on a stigma surface. A bumblebee queen, about 25 to 26, and Andrenid, about 20, and Osmia, about 18 or so. And to put that in perspective, on average, it takes about 12 pollen grains on a stigma that successfully germinate that are compatible with the flower to result in fruit. And so honeybees are very inefficient compared to native bees on a single bee basis. But the beauty of honeybees, not to take anything away from them, is that you can put hundreds of thousands of foraging bees in a field instantaneously, and that massive number of inefficient bees results in a numerical response that can set the crop. So a blueberry fruit can be set with one visit from a native bee or four visits from a non-native honeybee. But they both play a role in wild blueberry cultivation. I asked Frank how the growers in Maine manage this interplay. Do they actually need to bring in honeybees? How do they make this decision? Yeah, so I'll start out by saying that because as many fruit crops, not all, but many are so dependent on bee pollination that the growers really pay attention to pollination and it's actually part of their management. So we've been able to determine the amount of fruit set, which is your potential yield, based on the numbers of native bees and honeybees that visit flowers. Growers can go into the field and they can set out quadrants in their field and do timed counts of the bees that fly into the plots, and then using a, a simple regression equation calculation, they can determine their fruit set. We mentioned to them that if they do this for several years, then they can get an idea of whether they're getting adequate pollination, whether the native bees are providing adequate pollination alone, or whether they might need to supplement with honeybees, or if maybe if they don't want to rely on honeybees, because it is a very expensive cost in terms of the production of blueberries, whether it might be better to provide better bee forage around their fields for the native bees.
So depending on the composition of native pollinators from year to year, wild blueberry growers can make decisions about how many bee colonies they want to bring in during bloom periods. This decision can be influenced by many different factors. The yield goals of the grower, um, depending on whether they're okay with 30% fruit set um, that can be brought in by native pollinators, or if they want to push that to, to much higher. These decisions can be influenced by how long the bloom period is in any given year. Unfortunately, climate change um, tends to shorten this period a little with rainier springs that limit bee foraging. That's it for this episode, um, and that's it for a quick break from pest management. Stay tuned for more on Blueberry IPM in episodes to come. A big thank you to Frank Drummond from the University of Maine for his help before he rides off into retirement, and a special thanks to Brentwood's favorite son, Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Overinformed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu. Well, that's what's such a what's a, a, a neat opportunity for me to talk to you because you can comment on what's happening. <laughs> I'm just like old. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. So old. No. <laughs>